Hey there, 89ers. Today you're in for a real treat. This week we caught up with the one and only Nancy Spencer. Yes, that's right. She is a devoted listener to the podcast and loves hearing about all of you, her former students. Nancy talks about what it was like to be a first-year teacher and the high bar we set as a class. She shares some hilarious reflections on Albuquerque as a lifelong resident of the East Coast. She talks about meeting her husband, John Sandoval, and about the great influence that her time at the academy has had on her long career in independent schools. Now, ahead of school herself in Florida, Nancy is proudest of the family she created and her own children that she has launched into the world. We had so much fun talking to Nancy. She has been named again and again as a favorite teacher on this podcast, so we know you will listen and enjoy. I just saw you yesterday. <laughs> I know. It's really fun to see you in a professional setting where oh, that was it so was great. so great. That's the Ignite Your Creativity. Is that what it was called? So, so you've got yep. three new folks at Leadership and Design. Actually, none of the, only Antonio is new. Everyone else has been around. Yes. So Shushu and... Crystal have been around and Joe is not working for us full time, but he has been around forever. He was on my, my Cascade Lakes relay. Team. Oh, fun. Yes. And I used to run that crazy relay relay together forever. And he's just amazing. He's such a creative mm-hmm. thinker. Yeah, it was, it was really neat for our listeners, our many, many listeners. <laughs> um, we are talking about a virtual session that was led yesterday by Carla's colleagues at Leadership and Design that was talking about writing as part of your creative practice. Whether you end up really writing to publish or whether you're just using writing to keep your ideas flowing. And it was really fun to go back to thinking about how has my writing and the role of writing changed for me since I was a child to now. Yeah. And what did you discover in that reflection? Uh, Three things. One, squiggle books are awesome. And why don't we do those anymore? My third grade teacher used to write a scribble on a page and a notebook, and then we would create, you'd create a drawing from it. And then you'd write a story to complement your drawing. And I have a whole whole spiral notebook of these and they're so much fun. Um, So squiggle books, I used writing to process a lot of emotions in high school, middle school and high school. And now I find that I use writing much more for utilitarian reasons, keeping track of things, Mm -hmm. communicating Mm -hmm. something I want someone else to do or know. (laughs) It's, Mm -hmm. um, I don't use it to process what I'm thinking and feeling nearly as much as I used to. And I think part of that is I just talk to people instead. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> it, it, it t- it's less time. It takes less time. You just talk it out. <laughs> well, and there's someone to respond and tell you 
Right. Yeah, I can see why you feel that way. Or, hmm, have you thought about this this other way? You know, it's just, I think it's more, for me, I think it's more productive. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I do feel like getting back into a habit of writing and using that practice to clarify what I'm thinking is something that I would really benefit from. You write a lot in your job. I write a lot for my job, a lot. And I really enjoy it. And I feel like I'm somehow able in the work that I do to have a nice intersection of that writing being about our industry, mm-hmm. which is education, but also about me personally. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to combine some of that writing where I'm actually sharing parts of my journey and how I've evolved as an educator and a thinker and a, and a, and a leader of an organization and also able to talk sp- more about an industry. So that's been really nice for me. I still journal, but not on a daily basis. I kind of keep a journal that I refer to and go back to maybe once every few weeks. If I'm working on an issue, sometimes I want to process it a little bit. Um, But I was thinking a lot about, because one of the questions or one of the prompts that they gave us was about how we approached writing or the role of writing as a child and as a young adult. And I think a lot about the journals I kept Mm -hmm. on my own. I wrote in my journal every day. And most of it was about, you know, crushes and (laughs) social drama and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff. Um, Sometimes it was about more pressing, important stuff, but that was important and pressing in my (laughs) life back in the day. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, I was thinking that we used to actually have journals that we kept in English class that our teachers would read. Mm -hmm. And it was insight for them into who we were Mm -hmm. as people. And sometimes I would write personal stuff in there and get some really interesting feedback from John O'Connor or whoever it was who was reading my journal yeah, at the time. I remember that too, That's and I'd forgotten about that. And in humanities mm-hmm. as well, in senior humanities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so we were encouraged to write that mm-hmm. way. I did not love writing papers on literature. And I don't think it was that I didn't like thinking about literature, but I felt like there was a right answer and I was just never Mm -hmm. getting it. And I think what I was missing was this was an opportunity to come up with a creative Mm -hmm. thesis or, you know, I just think I didn't understand that Mm -hmm. at the time. So I wrote the paper that I thought was going to be what someone wanted Mm -hmm. me to say. So, I don't know. I don't think that that was what the, I don't think someone was telling me to do that. I just think that was what, that was the narrative I played in my head. So I didn't really love writing English papers. I liked coming up with creative titles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, working in schools as much as you do. And of course we, we still have kids in school. The impact of AI on writing and the way writing is taught it's just so interesting and it's already changed um, the way that homework and um, tests are being done at my kid's school. Oh, wow. Um, Interesting. So people have really had conversations. They actually hosted a little summer seminar for private school educators from the region to talk about, you know, how do we, adapt to this and and how do we view it as an opportunity as much as a threat to the way we've always been doing things so that's pretty cool 
Well, I think our guest today is going to have lots of insights on this, and I cannot believe we are getting a chance to talk to one of, um, you know, one of the influences on our class that is most regularly mentioned as a favorite teacher or a favorite influence. You want to share who it is. Today, we're going to get to talk with Nancy Spencer. Yay! Nancy... Spencer was our my 11th grade U.S. history teacher. Mm-hmm. I assume yours as well, right? She was mm-hmm. also my advisor. Um, mm. And what re- I recall about her is that she somehow got to know us as individuals. And I don't think that was just because she was my advisor. I mean, I remember Brad Bryan talking about how she's the one who said, you're really not a Reagan Republican. When you go to college, you'll figure that out, you know? Um, But she had a great sense of humor, was very smart, um, and was close to our age, relatively, Mm -hmm. you know? So it was very relatable. What do you remember? She was my college counselor. Well, she was my college counselor also. Um, Remember, we had two college counselors, Whitney Laughlin and then Nancy Mm -hmm. Spencer. And Nancy just happened to be the person who was working with me individually and helping me to make some decisions and choices. And she was actually the person who suggested Emory to me. She thought this was going to be a great match for me. She was excited about it. Turned out to be a home run for me as a school. But um, yeah, it was fun because she was really the person who was helping me on that journey and reading my essays and giving me feedback (laughs) on them. And um, speaking of writing, going back to writing and, uh, yeah, she was just very relatable, really did want to know us as as um, individuals, showed up at activities and games that we were involved Chaperoned in. Chaperoned our dances. She- Oof. <laughs> and, you know, I've been an independent school teacher of middle and high school students. And, you know, I think I've tried to to uh, do the same thing. You know, if, if everyone feels like they've been seen in a given day, it makes a huge difference on how you navigate some of the more um, just really hard, messy moments of being an adolescent. Absolutely. So she, I believe she had a couple of years of professional experience before she came to the academy. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah. I'm not sure how long she stayed for several years. And since then, she's been in a number of teaching and leadership roles at independent schools. It seems like all up and down the East Coast. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I think she's mostly been at um, schools in sort of the D.C. and Connecticut area. And then I think now she's landed as a head of school in Florida. So that's where she is today. And she is a head of school. And I want to ask her a little bit about what that's been like for her and that journey. Um, I'm married to a head of school, so I really do know how hard that job yeah, is. A very hard job. Oh, here she comes. Hi. <laughs> Running back from a faculty meeting. All right. Oh, yeah. Um, do, do you need a minute to. You know, you're good. good. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's so good to see you. Too. I'm just, I'm loving these podcasts. I have to say, I listen to them when I'm running in the morning and it's just fabulous. I'm so it's glad. Great. Has anything surprised you so far? 
just how old we all are. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pleasantly surprised you. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that's interesting and uh, is like, there's so many things that um, have like popped up, like things like I remember Jenna App telling me that Tommy Schmidt left a rose on her car. I remember Jenny Tung saying that I reminded her of her older sister. Oh. Um, just like all these things, listening to everyone, you know, just talk about, and it just, um, it just brings back just so many, so many memories, you know, and so it's just, it's great to hear. How does it feel to have your name come up so often? It's awesome. As- it's just, you know, <laughs> and the, the thing that's so interesting, and I will probably get into it, is that, you know, like I was 25, right? Mm-hmm. And it was my first year teaching, my first year teaching. And it's actually the, my only year that I taught four sections that I was a full-time teacher. In 35 wow. years, it's the only time. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is, I thought, this is normal. You get this, and your class really, I taught three APUS sections. Like I got some of the brightest kids. And I guess I thought, well, this is what it's like. You just show up and you have these incredibly amazing kids in this experience. And so that, so it just, I think it reiterates, and you know, not to blow smoke, but you, I think your class was actually a very, very special class. I really do. Just looking at the talented things and stuff like that. So, um. One of the things that I'm loving about the podcast is that it's making me realize how many creative outlets people have amongst this class. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, music and theater and fiber arts and, you know, and and being entrepreneurs, writing. I mean, there's so many people that are doing more than just kind of doing their job and taking care of their families and binging Netflix. I mean, people are really doing a lot and it's inspiring. Well, and, yeah. and then you think about, like I was thinking about this, So Jim Adams was in my class. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think about the empathetic component of your class dealing with, you know, a, a child with a disability, a pretty severe disability, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. every day at the end of class, Lee, um, Kyle Lee or Chris Bosom, like, okay, who's driving? And they would take Jim in his wheelchair and just, you know, things that affected your guys' abilities to to connect and bond, right? I was thinking about that. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about Jim and, and also Kristen Heinrichs and thinking mm-hmm. about ways to honor, and Samantha Zamora, yeah. thinking about ways to honor them in some way through this podcast too. And I will say it wasn't just that Jim had a disability. He had a very, he had a, he had a, a lifespan that we knew right. was not going to be right. that long. Right. So and I, I taught all three was... of those kids. I taught Kristen and Samantha and, I mean, I taught half your class. That's crazy. I taught half your class. <laughs> the lucky half. <laughs> you were my, yeah. And you were my college counselor. Yeah. Too. So yeah. Like and my advisor. Yeah. As well. yeah. 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 So um, we have adjusted today's questions just okay. a little bit for you. <laughs> but we thought we'd do sort of a similar format sure. where we're sort of getting a chance to hear about your journey. And yeah, then yeah. our flash round is going to be a little bit different. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Yeah. So Nancy, you've been listening to this podcast. So you probably already know that we start every one of these episodes with the same question. And you can really answer it however you'd like and go in many different directions. But the question is, what have you been doing for the last 35 years? 
Yeah. So, so after you all, you know, left the nest and went off to college, I, I stayed at the school for a couple more years. Um, and in the 35 years, pretty much it's been lockstep on my way to essentially be a head of school. You know, I, and I, and I always knew I wanted to be a head of school. I took, took a 10 month deviation into the for-profit consulting world, which was not great. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be a head of school, but I, I was not in a rush to get there, mostly because the other part of what I've been doing for 35 years is I got married to another teacher from the school and, and have had a family. And what's been most important to me really is balancing those two roles um, because I, I value, I really, really wanted to be a present and a part of my children's lives. And they both were college athletes and I wanted to go to their games. And I also saw like how challenging the role of being a head of school was. And so my, my objective was always to stay in schools taking on more roles and more responsibilities. So I went to business school right from uh, where I was. Both my husband and I went back and he got an MFA and I got an MBA. And then I spent 10 months as a management consultant, which was, you know, I sort of got sucked into the let's try the real world. And it was just not a great fit because I actually like being part of the implementation. That's what I've learned. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I did that for 10 months and then uh, we started our family and I had my son. Um, and then I don't know if you all realize this, but I was there at your 15th reunion in 1994 because Stan was just born and I, I was on maternity leave from this consulting job and I was dreading going back and I went to your reunion and I talked to all so many kids and I'm like, what are you doing, Nancy Spencer? And so that's when I made the decision to go back into schools and to go back and to be a director of admissions. And so like the impact of the class of 89 was even there. And so I did a search and I ended up as a director of admissions and financial aid, which I did for 10 years, which was a wonderful job um, back in D.C. near my family. Um, mm-hmm. we, had a, we had our second child, which was great. We did that. And then um, my husband, John Sandoval, you guys know, he had been teaching history. He'd left art and teached history. And what he really wanted to do was get back into the classroom as an art teacher. Mm-hmm. And we also just sort of wanted to try something new. And so that's how we ended up teaching at a New England boarding school. We spent 15 years teaching, living and living on campus, doing dorm duty, the whole thing. Um, and we were in Connecticut. And what was interesting is that was when I started teaching again. I mean, I've taught the whole way, but I taught um, year long there and I had advisees and I hadn't really had advisees that I'd connected with since, since you all. And that was sort of interesting. I felt like at this school, and I love these advisees, but it was a different relationship because like mm-hmm. I was their parents' age as opposed to being sort of the young, mm-hmm. fun faculty member. Um, so I did that for a while and then started doing the head of school search when my kids were out of high school, um, went through a couple rounds of different kinds of schools. And then this job, I actually ended up after my kids were out of college, which was really good. Mm-hmm. So I've been at um, a school that in some ways reminds me a lot of the school that you all were at. And it's a day school. It's actually great ages three through 12, grade 12. Wow. So it's a thousand kids. Um, but a lot of the idea of, you know, um, in Albuquerque, there aren't a ton of private schools. And that's sort of the same thing here in St. Pete. And mm. we're top of the food chain in St. Petersburg, just sort of like um, the academy was in there. So a lot of similarities. But really, you know, like, you know, again, I have not taken a lot of deviations. I've sort of been, you know, headed straight this way. Um, picking up lots of lessons along the way. I was an associate head for 15 years and, and doing admissions. Oh my gosh. I just have to 
I just was going to say, you know, my dad, you know, my dad, right? Yeah. He, Russian history. He, he went to Admiral Farragut Academy. Oh, did he really? <laughs> I didn't know that. That's dad right down the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a border, Carla, as a border? He did not board. You know, it's funny. His, his brother went off to Deerfield, but he wanted to stay home. And he grew he up in St. Pete? He grew up in St. Pete? Sort of. It's a longer story, okay. but he did do high school there. Oh, well, that's and awesome. He, he always talks about his Admiral Farragut yeah. days. I toured that campus. We went to go visit. It's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Least likely to be in military school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised by so many things in that statement. <laughs> Florida, Admiral. What? Yeah. Well, I was curious. Uh, so um, when you talked about wanting to be able to balance the work life and the personal life. It reminded me of a line that I've heard Brene Brown use, which is that mm -hmm. she is as personally ambitious as she is professionally ambitious mm -hmm. and, you know, wanting to be there for the kids games or to be able to support her parents when they need her or develop her friendships or whatever else is outside mm -hmm. of her work life. And when you look back at the time when your kids were still at home, what were the biggest rubs there? So, I mean, I've often felt like there, you have to look at life as phases, right? Mm. So this is the phase where I'm not going to, like, my job is contained and I know that I have to do that. For me, the largest stress, honest to God, was how am I going to get everybody where they need to go? And I would lie awake at night worrying about getting kids to soccer practices and myself to the game. When I had this commitment, my husband never seemed to worry so much about it. He's like, tell me what to do and where to go. And I do think that as women, we organize that a little bit more in our family structures and that stressed me out. And I just, you know, at the end of the day, everyone got where they needed to go and carpools are a wonderful invention. You know, you need to do to depend on that. Um, so that the biggest rub was making sure that like I felt as though I wasn't letting people down, you know, like I wasn't um, neglecting, you know, weekend dorm duty because I wanted to go watch a soccer game of my daughter. And how do I fit that all together? And, and the thing is, sometimes you can't go see the game because you have parents weekend, you know, and you have to do that. And sometimes you don't go to that um, play of your advisee because you're at your kid's thing. And so you just sort of try and make it go. I, I do think, though, that consciously choosing a job where you have some autonomy and flexibility over what you can do, and that's a luxury. That's a luxury. Like some people don't have that luxury, but I made a very conscious decision that I was going to limit sort of the responsibilities I took on because I knew that it was important to me to be able to you know, and it's not actually that my husband couldn't do it. Like my husband could go do all it, but I didn't want to miss out on it as well. And I'm glad, you know, I, I mean, I think about your husband, Carla, who is ahead very young, you know, like that, I, I just think that's hard and it's just different people had different paths. And I'm super, super glad because now as a head of school, my kids aren't home. I can stay here till like six and nobody, nobody cares. Like it doesn't matter. I'm not missing anything. Like I don't feel anything that I have no, I, I'm not torn between my roles and responsibilities by pacing what I am doing. And I actually planned that. I actually thought long and hard about it. Um, even as, you know, sort of before I became a head of school, I would look around at people younger than me as a head of school and be like, well, good, good for you. But, you know, it's just not quite yet for me. Absolutely. And I have, a, I know a lot of women 
more women than men mm -hmm. who really do make that calculated decision. One of the women who works for me at um, works with me at Leadership and Design, Crystal Land, was the same way. I mean, she really sat long and hard on whether or not the head of school role was the right one to go, whether that was the right path. And once her kids were sailed, it was very clear that yeah, right. it is because there wasn't that that feeling torn. Whereas my husband, I don't think gave that one iota of thought. Like, yeah. He just was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And I don't. <laughs> Not that he didn't care about our kids or about our family, right. but that wasn't something that was tearing him up inside. Right. I do think that I do think it actually is sort of much more of a female thing. And I talk to a lot of young administrators, female administrators and teachers who face that. And and I, I mentor a lot of folks about how thinking about career. And you know, um, one of the best jobs I ever had. So John was the head of the art department at Petty School. And so we lived there. And so the first year I was a consultant, hated it. For the second year, I worked for IES, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was the nonprofit, yeah, nonprofit competitor to the placement service. And it was almost the funnest year of my life because I was sort of a support staff person. I showed up, I worked for like six hours, I went home and yet, and I was able, I had a baby at home and it was like the best opportunity for me to sort of, you know, feel comfortable being a parent do a little bit of a job. And again, it's a luxury, you know, to have that sort of part-time kind of getting back mm -hmm. into it. So that when I went back to work full-time, I was like, whoo, you know, all in, let's mm -hmm. do it as well. We're kind of curious to hear about how your time at Albuquerque Academy influenced influenced your journey, if in any way. Sure. Well, it's, you know, it's a great question because I was only there for four years, but they were incredibly formative like incredibly formative. So just to back up a little bit, after I graduated from college, I spent two years as an admissions officer at an all-girls boarding school at Madeira, outside of mm -hmm. DC. And I looked at the teachers and they looked like they were having a lot more fun. And that's when I decided I wanted to teach. So I actually went back and got a master's in American studies from Yale. They had um, a master's degree and I actually did um, my master's thesis. I hadn't written a college thesis and I really wanted to write a thesis. I wrote a thesis about women's education about a woman named Ethel Walker, who started a girls' boarding school, funnily yeah. enough, in Simsbury, Connecticut, down the road from Westminster. <laughs> so it was during that time that I decided I wanted to teach. And because I'd gone to a girls' school, a girls' high school, I taught, I thought, I want to be at a co-ed school. I, like, I want to be at a co-ed school. I want to be at a day school. And I looked at international schools. I was thinking, like, let's go, let's go to Tokyo. And the, I went through Carney Sando, you know, at the placement that is, and I got the opportunity to interview at this school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'd never, I'd been west of the Mississippi once. I'd been oh my to San Francisco once. And I'm like, sure. And so I go out there and this is before they renovated the airport, right? This is the old airport. And they roll uh, the stairs out and I come like, out of the stairs and it's sunset. I'm like, where am I? <laughs> What is this? It's God forsaken is desert. Um, and I spent the night at the history department chair Gareth Jenkins' house, mm -hmm. and I taught I taught Mark Mike Pardee's class, um, mm -hmm. and I was offered the job. You know, uh, for this amazing salary of twenty one thousand dollars, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, so I decided. I know. So I decided to. I, I'd never. I thought, well, I might as well take the risk because if I hate it, I can always go home but I might as well just try it and see what it's like. And um, again, I don't know if you guys know this, but Kathy Campbell, who had been part of the Bear Canyon project, she was yeah. a high school classmate of mine. 
So oh. she'd been at the academy and she, she was, I was like, what is it like? And she had given me the scoop and she told me all about it. Um, so I thought, well, I'm just going to try it. And I get there. And so first of all, Albuquerque in 1987 is so different even than it was now. You know, like I remember thinking, I can't get a cup of coffee here. There's no place to get a double rainbow is the only place to get a cup of coffee. So that threw me. But I get there and I get this school which has such talented students and teachers, but totally unaware of how good they were. Like I think I think the school that that was there in the late 80s was so such a good school, but there was no um, context to compare it to other independent schools. And mm -hmm. that I think spoke to how down to earth and really authentic the school and the kids were. So I got there. And so first of all, they're basically, they basically said, teach, teach three AP US history classes. I'm like, okay. I'm like, they're like, just go. Like literally, that's what they used to say. So the summer before I got there, I went to the Library of Congress. I'm going, I live in DC. And I went to the Library of Congress and I checked out US history textbooks because you can do that. And I'm like, I'm going to look at what textbooks to use. So I picked a textbook and I created a course based a little bit on the course I had taken in high school. And I just sort of like went, you know, I just sort of, I mean, in terms of like, they just sort of said, go, like go. Um, it's very much sink or swim. That's one of the criticisms of independent schools in general. And so I had a ton of opportunity to try stuff. And I was advantaged by number one, the department chair, Garrett Jenkin, had a free period um, the same time I had a study hall right next to my study hall. So I would go in him with questions all the time. And he'd be smoking. This is back when you could smoke. <laughs> he'd be smoking in his classroom. So as a beginner teacher, I had unfettered access to the, my department chair, which was great. I also had a lot of people who were really willing to help me, like to sort of say, like, give me advice. And, and I think that that was hugely helpful in my first year of teaching. And so the other thing that happened is I kept getting opportunities to do different stuff. So after my first year, Whitney Laughlin, who is a college counselor, said, well, do you want to do college counseling? I'm like, sure. So that's how I ended up being a college counselor. I had admissions. I didn't have any college counseling experience. And then after you all were gone, they, Julian Bull came to me and said, well, do you want to be an assistant dean of students for the junior class? I'm like, sure. <laughs> so the opportunities to just do a lot of stuff mm -hmm. were really important and impactful. Um, and to have, I think, truly unfettered access to people who are like, well, do this, do this, do this. And, and I think it's, pro I don't know if it's still like that, but I do think that one of the advantages of our industry of independent schools is the more, I mean, if you have the, if you have the ability and the willingness and the interest, they'll just keep, you know, responsibilities yeah. just keep coming your way. And if you say yes, it's yours forever, you know? And if you say yes and you do a good job, you know, you just keep on doing it. So so number one, it framed my whole concept of what teaching was like. It framed my whole concept of advising, right? And what I liked about your school is that kids got to pick their advisor. And so that was sort of a nice thing. And so, again, I thought, well, that doesn't everyone just like go to the movies with their advisees or like invite them over for potlucks at their house? Like that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, and I'll never forget this, remember Dinah Martyr interviewed me for the school newspaper. And I thought to myself, a, I'm not that interesting, but okay, I'll tell you about it. But I also think that I had a very clear, I say this to young teachers, I had a very clear sense of kid world and adult world. And I had mm. never had any desire to get involved in kid world. I mean, one yeah. of the dangers of young teachers is they really want to be popular and they want to be cool and they want to like, 
And I, I think because I'd had my own experience in high school and I just, I, and also there were a lot of young teachers at the academy that were much more fun to hang out with. Like I never, I never felt compelled to get involved. That's why actually listening to some of these podcasts, I'm like, wow, listen, listening to some of the stuff that happened, I was clueless about. (laughs) So were we. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Whoa. We didn't know that spot existed. We were never invited to that. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, I think, I mean, I mean, I I had incredible advantages and I think mentors at the school, um, you know, again, it's hard to imagine I was only there for four years. Now, in retrospect, I'm like, it's hard to imagine I was only there in four years because I really did learn how to be a teacher there. And mm-hmm. and after you left the academy, between that time, I guess that would have been like your late 20s and where you mm-hmm. are now, were there, what were a couple of the inflection points professionally where you either pivoted, made some decision, or maybe it was just something that helped you to really grow professionally? Well, certainly it was the decision to, to come back into schools, you know, and, and one of the reasons I thought about this is um, I made this decision that, that time was more important to me than money. Like I'd rather spend time doing things I like than in a job that potentially was highly compensating. And um, as a consultant, and I'm sure this is true with attorneys and everything, you, I had to bill my time. Mm-hmm. And I would walk around the office, and one of the things I thought, I would compare it to a school where you basically would say, hey, how was your weekend? What happened? You'd, you'd connect on a relationship level with a wide variety of people. And I think one of the things I realized is people actually believe their billable rates. They believe that their time is worth X dollars in comparison to other people. And I, and I, that just rubbed me the wrong way because, you know, in a school, it's about hearing every voice and getting experience from all sorts of people, whether it's support staff or kids or everything. And that kind of relationship connection was something that I actually really, really missed outside of schools. And so one of the big things, it was, it was, um, it was 1995. And I was like, I need to go back to schools. I want to do this. And I loved running my own office, you know, as a director of admissions, I had, Four, I had a staff before. I love that. Um, and, you know, I think of all the, I mean, I love all the jobs I've had, but being an admissions director is the closest to my heart. You know, I have this theory in independent schools that we've all done a lot of things, but there's some core identity. And for me, it's always admissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was good. And and then I think going to the boarding school, I'm not a boarding school person. I grew up as a day school person. Um, you know, I was used to like hanging out in other people's kitchens and stuff like that. And, and particularly, a, I was at a traditional New England boarding school, jacket and tie, Saturday classes, you know, mm-hmm. athletics, you know, dorm duty. And I, um, I went into it with this thought, like, who sends their kids to boarding school? And it was one of the best experiences. <laughs> well, you know, but that's the thing is like, but did you, did you find yourself getting judged by other people, Carla? Like people like, how could you do that? Oh, in my town? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm in a town too that doesn't even like private schools. Right. They only public schools. So there was that. And then also on right. top of it, you're sending your child. Yeah. What did he do? What did he do? Why are you sending him away? Um, <laughs> and the horrible child. And what I found <laughs> is that first of all, I had incredibly strong relationships with the kids. Very, I mean, mm-hmm. the value of a boarding school is the intensity of relationship is just ramped up. And I spent um, eight summers at sleepaway camp for eight weeks with my sisters. And that's how I understood boarding schools and that, and the intensity of relationship. And so the relationship I had with my advisees and watching their relationship with their parents, 
And, and part of it was New England. Like people, a lot of people lived within an hour, an hour and a half. So the parents would come up to the games on Wednesdays and Saturdays and they would take them out to dinner. And, and it was very, I mean, it was, it was a very sort of, I, I guess, you know, it was, there was far more nurturance and connection. You know, there were some, I mean, there were certainly some kids who were from far, far away. Um, but I appreciated the independence that these kids developed far more than my own children that like I'd get them up, I'd make sure they get to class and like in boarding school, you're on their own. And I, and I, and I was at a small boarding school, so everyone really did value the sense of community. So it was a wonderful, the decision to, to experience that at, at a boarding school has really, it made me far more um, multidimensional in understanding it. And the other thing is as the associate head, I was sort of the COO. So like I was responsible for the daily life of the school and that's everything from faculty hiring. I did all the faculty hiring, um, where people lived, which in a boarding school is huge. Right. Like who gets to live in what apartment? Um, yeah. there's, you know, like snow days, calling snow days, um, dress code, family style meals, like, like major plant, like what roofs get filled. I got a lot of, um, information about running a school from that. Mm-hmm. Jessica and I were talking before you came on. I mean, you were our history teacher and we were growing up in the age of Ronald Reagan. And um, I remember distinctly, I think we might've even had an election that year. I feel like- 1988, 1988, it was Yeah. Yeah. Right, so we even had an election that year. And now we're in this new- reality of incredible political polarization. And I have, right before this call, I was on a call with my colleagues. We have done um, some work around election season and helping schools to have more open, healthy conversations about political situations and issues. And we're getting ready to relaunch that for next year. And I was thinking about you and coming on this, on this podcast and and thinking about how that has that ability to teach U.S. history and in particular really have those conversations about what's going on in the political realm, has that changed? And as a head of school, what do you find challenging or not challenging about that right now? Well, and add in, we're in Florida. I know, and you're in Florida. And Jessica's in Texas. Yeah. I'm in California. Yeah, right. in Northern California. Um, so there's only one. <laughs> right. So, um, so I taught a class every year I was at Westminster, which is the boarding school, and it was called the Outsider Experience in American History. And mm-hmm. we thought we did a lot of talking about um, current events and those sorts of things. Um, I do. And also, so Shorecrest, where I am right now, is a non it's a it's a non-religious mm-hmm you know, ages three through 12, we're what we call a purple school and that we have fam- we have families from very different um, uh, political persuasions here at our school. And the reason they cho- choose us is because we are a school where it brings in a diversity of opinion and ethnic and racial backgrounds. So um, we affirmatively say that we want to challenge our students and teach them how to have difficult conversations so that that's really a skill they develop as they go off to college. I mean, we think that's part of our college prep mission is to prepare students how to have difficult, respectful conversations with people from different perspectives. So I think this, the structure of an independent school where we say this is what we do in some ways gives us protection. Um, now, 
I think people are a little bit more wary of, you know, things blowing up. I So I got to ShoreQuest July 1st, 2020, in the midst of COVID, in a very politically polarized election mm-hmm. year. And mm-hmm. it was, and parents weren't allowed to be on campus. So it was just really tough. And I'm sort of wondering what it's going to be like this year. Um, but I think... I think we have a better opportunity than certainly public schools and certainly public schools in the state of Florida or in Texas to have these conversations. And we say outright, like, this is what we do. And if you come to our school, this is what you can expect. This is part of our mission, you know, develop critical thinkers, lifelong learners. Um, so do we have blow ups? Absolutely. You know, do people get upset about stuff? Sure. But we always go back to the idea that part of our mission is to prepare your child to actually thrive once they leave a school like this. Um, so I'm hoping that it won't be as tough as it was in 2020. <laughs> yeah, well, I might be reaching out to you about some other things around that topic as we get ready for this yeah. this work we're doing. <laughs> um, so I'm curious about on the personal side of your of your life, what are you most proud of? So, um, well, I mean, so, so I've been married for almost 33 years, which again, you all were there at the very beginning, which is a hoot and a half too, because, you know, dating somebody in your own work environment and trying to keep it a secret from the kids whom you were teaching, right? We tried that for about six, eight months, and then we gave up doing that. Um, So I think that for me, I'm most proud of, you know, the family that I've built you know, mm-hmm. with, of course, my husband. Um, and our, our, we have two kids in their 20s who are reasonably launched and, you know, pretty, pretty solid, well-nurtured kids who like to spend time with us and are kids that we enjoy. And, and I think that I'm proud that um, I've been able to do that. Um, I'm, I'm proud that I have solid, solid friends that go back to my high school you know, really, really deep bonds and friendships of, of connection with um, kids. I mean, sorry, it's with, with classmates and then just, you know, solid family relations. I just I just feel really good about everything we we need to be nurtured. I have that pretty much sort of intact, you know, you know, right now. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, I would love to hear what was there a moment or some experience that brought you and John Sandoval together. <laughs> so we were at um, we were at a happy hour of a, you know an Albuquerque Academy teacher happy hour. John Leggett was there, <laughs> Trina Sorensen. It was just you know Danny Packer, um, and we uh, we were it was like in October. I had just gotten there fairly recently, and then he and I just went out to a movie after that. And we just decided to go out to a movie, and then he took me cross country skiing, which I had never done before, and I was not very good at. Um, and it just, it was just, um, you know, it's just one of those things where, again, I, I didn't really, when I moved to, like many people who moved to a city for a job, the only people I knew were the people in the job. And mm-hmm. so that, that was sort of my whole social, social, uh, th- sort of social thing. And one of the things about the academy is they had two strains of teachers. They had sort of Ivy League teachers that they recruited, and then they sort of cherry picked the best of Albuquerque public school teachers. And so he and I are sort of representing those two things. And so it was fascinating because he's from New Mexico. He's Hispanic. I learned so much about the community of Albuquerque. I mean, that's why we still go back because his family is still there. 
Um, and I learned, like I learned stuff about the academy that I had never known. Um, he was a swim coach, swim, so I, you know, got I went to all the swim meets and I got to know Dave Barney really well. I was at the swim meet that Chris Travis won the state championships. I was there, and then I don't know if you remember it, but that lunch the next week, the swim team got to shave John's mustache off <laughs> because that was the deal. If they won the boys and girls swimming and diving, so like in front of all the whole upper school, he they like shaved his mustache <laughs> off. Um, so I, I, had, I think you know I think, had him for art that year. So. I'm pretty sure I was taking an art class. Yeah. So I just, you know, I just admired him. I've always admired him as a teacher. Like he's, he's so creative as a teacher and he's always, he always tries and do, does new stuff. I've learned about him about, like I, I probably sit a little bit too much with my same sort of topics that I do. And he always, you know, the fact he became a history teacher because he wanted to try something new. He taught, he taught, he started by teaching AP art history. This is at Bullis. He taught AP art history. And then he taught AP world history and then he taught ethics. He taught a history of rock and roll. Like he just kept teaching a whole lot of other stuff. And so um, I just learned a lot about being a teacher from him because he's a couple of years older than I am and had been teaching longer. So um, well, he'll have to listen to Laurel's episode because he gets named in that. Oh, yeah, that's, in that <laughs> that's awesome. As a major yeah. influence. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. He does listen to these also. Yeah. <laughs> is there something that you um that you wish speaking of teaching mm -hmm. is there something that you wish that was taught now that was not part of our high school curriculum or that's not uh, even part of well, the current high school yeah, i mean if i'm sure you guys remember it like basically i lectured and you took notes like it was so, it was so teacher directed, right? That's what I thought you're supposed to do is like yeah. lecture, lecture, lecture. One of the things I did do, which I've actually continued whole ways, including a news break component, a current events component. That was always important to me. And I actually kept it up, you know, all the way through my teaching. And then, um, you know, I... I, I do you guys remember Newsweek? Remember Newsweek magazine? Oh, yeah. So I, I we got subscriptions for Newsweek magazine, and then we put the covers up on the wall. And I remember at the end of the school year, we looked at it, and except for like two people, it was all white nails on the cover of Newsweek. Um, but I think if I if I could teach again, you know, like I mean, part of me wants to say I didn't really know what I was doing because uh, you know, having like many independent school teachers, I did not have much educational or pedagogy background. I, I ended up doing the Klingenstein Summer Institute for Teachers, which is the first time I had any exposure to any of that. And I'm like, John Dewey, oh my gosh, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, what, pedagogy, what? And, and I do think that a lot of it, I had good instincts and I had good models for my own teaching. But like the very first test I gave, Leanna Jankar ran out of the room crying. <laughs> And I had this vivid memory, like, oh my God, she's crying. What did I, what did I do? And, and I think it was too hard. I think the test was just like too long, too hard. And, but like, I didn't know. So I think that I wish I'd known more about teaching before I began teaching, you know, and, and, and I think that that maybe a lot of first year teachers feel that way. Um, but I wish I wish that I had been able to more quickly get to the point of like discussion-based or flipped classroom or just, you know, less like we're now going to, now we're going to do the, you know, 
Alien and Sedition Act, and I'm going to tell you and stuff like that. So, well, I still have my essay somewhere from the very first, the very first essay that you assigned, which is what is history. Yeah. And I went home and I wrote that essay and I showed it to my dad, who was the history professor, history department chair at the University of New Mexico. He was like, "Good luck submitting that piece of block." You know. <laughs> I think I got a check. I didn't get a check plus or oh a check my minus. Oh my gosh. I just, yeah. yeah. I did not. I, I have that essay somewhere. Yeah. You know, the other thing I did, the other thing I did, and, and again, you all are both former teachers, the research paper, I don't know if you remember, I do. yeah. research paper, yeah. it was due the Friday before spring vacation. And my first year of teaching, I spent the entire spring vacation grading oh. research papers. And now I'm like, why did I, like, why did I do, like, I just did that. And then after the fact, I'm like, I'm never doing that again. Like that, that was not, that was not the right thing. Did Jessica turn it in on time or did she turn it in after spring break? I will will say one of the most important things that I think (laughs) students need to realize is that, and again, when you think about kids, like I very rarely think of them in terms of the grades and their performance. You know what I mean? But I think kids, when they're taking a class, think that. Think that the teacher's evaluating them as their performance instead of sort of themselves. And and that's something that like you never like I don't think about that hardly at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting point. I, very true. It's just so interesting too. I mean, I had a sense of brilliant people in my classroom. And I also not am not a hundred percent sure I was aware of how people we're doing in class. I often had an inflated sense of that in some cases. I also think I didn't recognize, even though he was brilliant, but he was such a cut up. I mean, David Eagleman was an amazingly brilliant thinker, still is. I just had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. And yet in French class, he insisted on being called croissant. <laughs> And so, you know, you're like, is this person taking this class seriously? And of course he was, and he was an incredible thinker. And I don't think he ever got anything below an A plus and he was a photographic memory and all of that stuff. Um, But, you know, you don't really know you're in the sea of people and you sort of know what you don't know. And (laughs) you know, what's funny is when I was in 1995, when I was looking for a job, I went and interviewed at a school outside of Houston. And this is before like Facebook and before the, and, and I ended up having, finding out and getting in touch with, and I had dinner with Mark Benyars, David Eagleman, and I think Chris Eisbach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah they, they were all. all right. Yeah. And so we, we like, we all, we just like, I knew they were in Houston. We just got together and had dinner. And it was one of those things where, and again, I have no idea how I got in touch with them, but it was just one of those things that they were just kids I remembered and wanted to stay in touch mm-hmm. with as well. Mm-hmm. I remember David Eagleman being like, you know, super conservative, you know, and, and uh, he didn't like me at first. We, he and I like butted heads and then we actually got along really, really well. Yeah. 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 Well, there was quite a lot of that. It was the, it was the Reagan years yeah. and we were in a, we were in a city where a lot of parents were working at Sandia Labs and their job was to build atomic weapons yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> you would ask your friends, what do you, what does your dad do? What does your mom do? And they'd be like, I can't. I cannot say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we should turn to the future. Okay. So you've been at your current position three years. Yep. 
And what do you see for yourself coming up professionally and personally? Yeah. So John's retired, which he's thrilled with. He sort of, he, he worked here for a little bit and then he just, he's like, he's at it. So he, again, but he's a couple years older than I am. I mean, for me, um, one of the, one of the benefits I think of waiting to have a headship is I'm not really looking for the next headship. Like a lot of people are sort of doing that. I really like this. I sort of feel like I'm just, I feel like I'm just getting started here because my whole first two years were COVID and, and it was just like managing and surviving. So we're just now sort of finishing our strategic plan, looking ahead. Like now we're really actually looking forward. So my, I mean, I think that I have a, you know, a good chunk of time here, um, just getting Shorecrest moving, moving us along and uh, seeing our future and what we can do. So that, so my, my future is definitely here. Um, I've gotten involved. We, our FCIS is the Florida Council of Independent Schools. I'm on the board of directors there. So it's nice to have a role in the state of Florida in independent schools. Um, so I, I, I think that's my future is definitely focused here. I, you know, I, it's funny because my dad was an attorney and he stayed practicing till he was 90. And I do kind of think about, and I've talked about this with my other friends in education, like I don't, like a lot of people when they retire, they still keep their, they dabble. I don't, I don't know how you do that coming from this role. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. you can't really dabble in like helping to run a school. So I, I, one of the things I need to think about is, you know, whenever I'm done doing this, what am I going to do next? And I don't have any, I have thoughts, but I don't, I can't even imagine it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that one of the things I learned actually from both Bullis and from Westminster is I like to leave a place when I feel like I've learned as much as I've given, like where it's an even kind of thing. And I, in both situations, um, I couldn't imagine leaving until I could, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like Mm -hmm. uh, until you're at a point like, okay, I've done this. I know what I'm doing. Time to stretch new muscles. And certainly being ahead of school, there's new muscles to stretch all the time. Like I, I can't imagine getting bored. There's just so many different, different things to do. Um, so I'm kind of excited to figure that out. I've, you know, I've been fundraising that, that was probably the newest, um, sort of arrow in my quiver. I've been able, I've landed a million dollar gift, which is great. And 300,000 to start a program. Like that's kind of exciting to, to fundraise for something that you feel. Well, that's, I mean, again, it's what you guys do, but it's, I mean, there's, there's an adrenaline. Like when you land a gift for something you believe in so strongly, that's, I can see why that's really addictive. Yeah. It, it has proven to be a lot of fun for me throughout my career. It seems like no matter what position I in, I'm in, somehow I end up doing some fundraising or grant writing or something. Yeah. Um, and it is Great. maybe that I do like the, uh, it's, it's binary. You get it or you don't. And mm-hmm. you're going, yay. Whereas with human development, you know, there's never a finish line. <laughs> um, so yeah, I can see, I can see why there would be something fun about doing that at this point in, in your career. And it does make such a difference when you're passionate and committed to what you're raising money for. Um, it makes it a lot more well, and, fun. And sort of being, being a mission, I mean, to be in education is being a mission-driven person. And, and again, it has to be the right school. Like I, I was in six head of school searches before I end up in this job. And for yeah. a lot of reasons, I firmly believe that like things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this has been the best fit for me. Like I'm super happy 
that these other yeah. the other schools didn't work out because I, I just don't know it would have I would have been so aligned and that's that's part of figuring out figuring out where like where, what is good for you and knowing yourself well enough to mm-hmm. say like okay this is a good fit mm-hmm. that's been sort of a huge piece of my maturation of like okay what's a, what's good for me yeah when you're teaching, you can sort of be maybe a little counterculture to the organization. But when you're the head of school, you have to really align with the values of the school. You have to believe that that's the right culture for you, or that you can you can help to share the culture with other people. And 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 you can't change cultures so so easily. So you have to kind of believe that the culture you're in is is the right one and i think schools have dna i really do i think i think schools like you can't come in and and expect you have to you have to really understand and acclimate well i'm glad you found such a great fit that's wonderful yeah me too me too and i'm glad you're finding it fun yeah and that it's interesting so that's great well, and the, the other thing is that so many heads of school, like they talk about what a lonely position it is and how they feel, you know, like, and I, I mean, I have such a good administrative team. I've never felt that way. I have so many people that I can thought partner with and sort of, you know, and that's been a huge piece of why it's been such a good experience. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, should we go back in time for our flash yeah. round? Sure. <laughs> so we did change the questions. Okay. And, you know, you'll you'll recognize them. Okay. <laughs> Jessica, do you want to start? Sure, I'd be glad to. <laughs> First of all, we normally do a little reflection about what how you saw yourself back then. But oh, I yeah. think you yeah. covered that to some degree. Yeah. Um, but I'll add that I, my recollection of you is that you really were interested in us as people and you're, you're saying that you really weren't concerned about, oh, I like this student better because she got an A than this student who got a C. That doesn't surprise me at all, given the way you came across as being genuinely interested in all of us. Um, And I think that um, I very clearly remember the research paper. I also remember bringing in political cartoons. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there was just something about the way that the class was structured where it was intellectually demanding, but it wasn't being pushed down our throats. There was a lot of base Mm -hmm. for us to bring ourselves into the conversations and to pick topics that were interesting to us. And, um, it was really fun. And then of course our advisory group was the best. Yeah, it was. (laughs) All right. Do you want to add anything before we jump into the lightning round, Carla? No, I mean, I, Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I, I, well, the one thing I would say is I remember taking this was an AP class mm-hmm. back in the day. APs were still relatively new-ish. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it feeling like I was being taught to the test constantly. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it being some crazy fast pace where we were just being like mm-hmm. information, content, 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 which I think my kids have experienced a little bit more in this day and age. But I appreciated like really, once again, we were allowed to have discussions and I was allowed to battle it out with 
with Brad Bryan in class. And I was able, we were able to take a moment to console Kyle Lee when his barn burned down one morning and, you know, we were able to be people. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to add, Nancy? I, I was just saying that, I mean, um, I think because it was my first year teaching that, I mean, it, it's, it was just imprinting on, I, I, I just, I don't think I knew how else to be right. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and because I hadn't, I just sort of thought, okay, well here, here are these kids. Let's just, you know, let's, let's just go, let's go. <laughs> and so I, I mean, I, I, it's, so it's not very articulate. <laughs> well, it, was, it, it worked. It worked. So. It worked. Furbay says <laughs> it really worked. Yeah, yeah. So we have eight questions for you and you are welcome to pass if you don't want to answer them. And you're also welcome to elaborate if you feel like it would be nice to have a little bit of a background or context. Okay. The first question, who was your favorite student? (laughs) Come on. We were joking. No, actually, no. I, I will. I will say something that um, um, w- when we talk about kids who were new to the academy in junior year, I think yeah. about Arthur Bloom, who was also new. Oh, did he come that yeah. year? I think he did. And okay, one of the things I I thought um, I was just so intrigued by how his mind worked. Like he was just such an interesting, interesting guy. And, and, and again, it's not favorite student, but I remember he one time didn't prepare for a test and he got like a C and he was like a really, really good student. And he's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't prepare. And I thought, well, then that must mean it's somehow working. You know what I mean? It was just, it was sort of an interesting dynamic. Hmm. Um, and I think he ended up like working in Google, like isn't it, or Microsoft, mm-hmm. he, he, he worked at Google X. Yeah. And I just, I remember I always, he was a kid that I was always super impressed with mm-hmm. actually honestly sometimes and maybe again sometimes you teach kids you're like this kid is smarter than I am <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and that's how I felt about him it's like this kid is smart I may know more right now but he's super smart and yeah. another yeah. musician yeah. in our class yeah 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 cool yeah and that year we added Jenna App right. we added Page, I think we added um Bruce Montgomery we had a little yeah. influx there of some really cool new students. And uh, that was a fun year. Oh, it's me. Okay. We've talked a lot on this podcast about munch pudding and veal birds and the joy of Loy Lagore's cuisine. But when you walked into the dining hall for lunch, what dish were you always hoping was on the menu? Um, So I actually, I actually loved munch pudding, right? Um, Here's a funny story is that my first quarter I wasn't assigned a table. Like I didn't, I didn't have a family style table, which of course I was like bummed about. I was like, I don't have a table. It wasn't. Where'd you eat? So I ate sixth period with all the staff. Okay. Okay. And the food they served there was a little bit different. So new, you know, Nancy Spencer, East Coast, new to New Mexico, they served some green chili on whatever it was. And I'm like, Sure, sure, sure. 
I get to the study hall. I had a ninth grade study hall right after lunch. I get there and I'm like, I'm not feeling good at all. And I went to the bathroom right next to her and all the green chili came back up. <laughs> like it was just like, I was like, I can't, my stomach was like, what did you do? And then right when it came back up, I was fine. <laughs> but I think they, I think they had different like heat of chili for the non-students afterwards. And so that was sort of interesting. And then then I got a um, I got a table like the third quarter and Laura Kate and Christine Hahn were at it. And I was just, um, so I like that. I like this, I like the sandwich bar. I like that. I just like sitting at a table with everybody. I just thought it was, you know, I hadn't done that at my high school and I thought it was great. And then since then, quite honestly, I was in charge of family style lunch at some of the schools I've been at. So it was just sort of nice about it. That's one of the things about our high school experience that I really appreciate. I appreciate both that it was family style and that everyone had to take their turn waiting the tables. Yep. Um, it yep. just created, I think, a really nice sense of community. And um, it was yeah. something that I wish was more common now. Something yeah. I don't think you guys know, but those beautiful tables, those round, beautiful wood tables, my husband and his father made them. No, oh, I don't know. They made them over this. They made them over the summer. They came and they made those tables. Oh, cool. and it was just, it was lovely. Yeah. I will say I was deathly afraid of the microphone. I never wanted to make an announcement. If I could just never yeah. make the announcement, I would have just been happy. And I, I made like, Bill. I made Bill Cudd do all of that too because he loved <laughs> he loved doing that. When I when he when he was a senior class dean and I was junior junior class dean, we were supposed to take turns, but he loved it. I'm like, you you go, <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> now I'd love it. I love rocking the mic now. But then. Uh, okay, third question. When you had a few free minutes on campus and you needed to recharge, what did you do? Um, so my first year, my office was in the Sims Fine Arts building and I shared an office with John Gray. So it was over by, so I would just go back to my office. Um, I would often, um, there were times where John was proctoring the art gallery in Sims and I would go visit him and sort of see what's going on. Um, I um, I liked to sort of go to the library, the old library, because um, it was just sort of, I would just walk around there. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I'm not, I, I would I would just sort of roam around the halls, mm -hmm. you know, and, and sort of see who was there and, you know, get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Oh, you know what? Actually, in the old dining hall, do you remember there was a chocolate, hot chocolate maker? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would go get hot chocolate there. Mm. Nice. I love that. We kind, of, we kind of covered question number four just mm. a little bit, but maybe, maybe there's something you want to add to it, which is you move to Albuquerque from the East Coast and you already have already told us you have, you were not a West Coast person. You've never been West of the Mississippi, Mississippi. What do you think was really the most surprising thing about New Mexico for you, either in that first year or just like when you look back on it, what, what's a surprising part of being in Albuquerque in particular? So what was fascinating to me was how little the people in New Mexico cared about the East Coast. You know, <laughs> when, you up, when you grow up in the Northeast quarter, honest to goodness, you grow up in the Northeast quarter between Washington and Boston, you think like the whole country revolves around the Northeast quarter, right? So I get out to New Mexico, and do you remember the states quizzes, the state map quizzes mm -hmm. I gave yeah. you all? So part of the U.S. history was I gave you a map of the U.S., and New Mexico kids, like, 
they're like, Virginia? What are these little states? Connecticut? It was so interesting to me that in New Mexico, they just were living such a life without concerns about New York or Boston or Washington, D.C. And one of the ways I saw this was Thanksgiving. Like Thanksgiving is such a big deal in New England. Thanksgiving is all about it. And in New Mexico, Thanksgiving's like, meh, you know, eh. And it was just, it was just, it was appreciating. It was so valuable for me to get, to see, to understand, A, the, how big the country is, how, like, because I traveled a lot. I mean, I, we went to the Grand Canyon, we went down to El Paso, we went, you know, I, I did do some driving around New Mexico, Chama, and it made me just realize that there's so much more to the United States than the East Coast. And that's something that when, um, when we had children, it was super important to us that our children understand and value their New Mexico roots. I mean, their last name is Sandoval, right? It's a common, common New Mexico name. And so yeah. we made it a real point to come back to New Mexico and make sure that they, you know, didn't get caught up in the whole East Coast, like, this is the be all and end all. Um, and I think that's something that is super important. And I say that to people, like if you can get off the East coast and like, even if it's to go to college or to get a different experience, it's really, really important. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Question five, what song or band would be on the soundtrack for your experience at our high school? Well, I have two stories about this. First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm not great at music. Like I, I, I think I'm probably very stunted in that. So um, <laughs> Don Smith and Lucy Crane and Bill Kaw and John Sandoval all went to go see Eric Clapton. Um, and I was like, who's Eric Clapton? <laughs> he was like, who are you? I was like, my, he was my then boyfriend there. I was like, you know, and I was like, sure, I'll go. And then of course I get there. And of course I recognize the songs, but I like, but I have this vivid memory of making fun of 10,000 Maniacs, which was very big at the time. And Jessica Slade, my advisee, gave me a mixtape <laughs> of 10,000 Maniacs Unplugged. And I was like, this is amazing. And actually, we went to go see Natalie Merchant at Wolf Trap when we were living there. And like, this is, I played that cassette tape all the time. Oh, all the time. About a name anywhere I know his face in the city. I think I was making I was making fun of the name of the group because I was like, well, what is that? And and I I was very appreciative that you took the time to give it to me. And it's like, okay, that was a good education. <laughs> so I would say that I would say ten thousand maniacs. And then Tracy Chapman is a huge memory because she, um, her, her album came out when, in that time. And that was a big, that always yeah. takes me right back. Yeah. Amazing. And fast car right now is like the number one, um, hit on the country right. chart. She's the first black woman to have a number one single on the country, uh, on the country charts. She's an independent <laughs> school grad too. She, oh, she yeah. came up through ABC. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Where did you go to school? Somewhere in Boston, I believe. Uh, yeah. yeah, makes sense. Awesome. Um, well, you know, I saw Natalie Merchant in, in college. Um, and uh, at the time, this was in Atlanta. And there was so much great music, of course. And and uh, Michael Stipe pops out of the audience for one of the yeah. songs. Yeah. 
Yeah, because, you know, REM was our, REM, the B-52s, they were always just floating around and uh, floating around Atlanta, Indigo <laughs> Girls. <laughs> All right. What Academy colleague had the greatest influence on Other you? than your husband. Other than my husband. Um, well, I mean, it's certainly Whitney Laughlin, who was the college counselor, who sort of um, mentored me as to being a college counselor. Um, Julian Bull, who, when he was the dean of students, in you know, hired me to be one of the assistant dean of students. That was really, really helpful. Um, I think Bruce Musgrave, who was the chair of the English department, um, mm -hmm. I admired his ability to both teach and coach because he was a pretty hardcore soccer mm -hmm. coach as well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously the person that I model everything on was Bob Phillips. You know, Bob Phillips, who was the long, long time assistant head. And I thought a lot about him, just sort of the role he played in sort of keeping the school running. Um, That's so interesting I, because he is not front of mind for me at all. So well, yeah. can you say a little more about what you observed or, or what aspects of him you're modeling yourself yeah. so on? So I was at a lunch table and they were talking about um, the trip that sophomores take, like all they, like all sophomores okay. had to do a trip. And I, and I sort of said something like, I would love to go on that. Like, that sounds like so much fun. And so he goes, uh, yeah, you should go. I'll make sure you go. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he just sort of made it so I could go. And I think what he understood was that that was a valuable experience for me to have as a teacher, regardless of the fact it wasn't kids I was teaching. Um, I think Walt Dobb, I mean, again, because I was always kind of interested in administrators, like watching mm -hmm. Walt Dobb manage his role as the upper school head and, you know, dealing with all the stuff that was going on um, just in general. So I, I just, I liked watching how administrators managed so much of what, what it was. And, you know, because um, I, I mean, I like wanting stuff. I like doing stuff. And my whole business school application um, was about how independent schools tend to promote good teachers, but they don't teach them how to be good managers. I mean, that without, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what it was. And so I, I felt like I, some of it I had instinctually, but being able to understand how organizations work and how, you know, how you can um, inspire teachers, which is like herding cats, like really independent schools attracts really independent, smart teachers. So I think, I think, Watching the administrative structure of the academy was fascinating. And as I got more into it, sort of seeing it go has been mm -hmm. good. That's so cool. Well, Jessica and I even reflected at one point, I'm not sure if it made the podcast or not, but how we didn't really know what people were doing. Yeah. Who, who what did these people do? Don, Don, Smith, Don Smith, who was the upper school head, he was so good. And we joked about his shrug. It's like, yeah. You're like, like he and he and he never took it too personally, which I learned was one of the, the best things is that developmentally teenagers are going to do stuff and you just that's part of their job in being teenagers. Yeah. And, but I was really young at the time. And, and I'll never forget I, when I was a dean of students, I was got I got so upset with something they did. And my husband's like, as somebody who's been teaching a lot longer than you, understand this is just what happens. And I, that was really kind of helpful because I, I ended up not taking it personally and I was a better administrator because of it. 
and maybe a better parent too, because of course they do that to you as children. (laughs) I remember Don Smith walking by me during, I don't know, it was like seventh period. I was sitting on the floor of the locker bay, frantically finishing the flower costumes for the Alice in Wonderland play that we were supposed to perform somewhere in the city at like 4.30 and the costumes weren't done. And I'm down there cutting, cutting, cutting and you know, over, and he walks over to me and goes, aren't you supposed to be in Mr. Tucker's class or Tucker Curtis's class right now? And I looked up at him and I said, yeah, I am, but I really need to get these done. And he said, that's fair, but you know, you're going to have to have detention. And I was like, yeah, I remember that. I, I remember that, that you came and told me, you're like, I took the tar, I took the absent. I, just yeah, I was it. like, you know, yeah. but again, he didn't take it personally. What's done yeah. is done. And he's like, okay, yeah. you made a choice. And By the way, I remember, I remember seeing one of those plays, the Alice in Wonderland play. I remember see, I remember, I actually, I don't know where I saw it, but I actually came and saw it. <laughs> I remember that vividly. <laughs> This just proves my thesis, which is Jessica was our very own Max Fisher from Rushmore. I mean, honestly. <laughs> she could have, she would have started the fencing club, the beekeeping club. <laughs> she would have never gone to class. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or written the papers on time. <laughs> All right. If you could go back to the 80s and tell yourself something about the future, what would it be? Um, so before I answer this, I have to say one, one other little story that I have to tell you is that Sean Murphy and I chaperoned prom together. Oh yeah. I have pictures of that. Yeah. And it was one of those things where that was so much fun because it was before people knew I was dating John and it was like, Ooh, ooh. it was just, it was, so fun. I, he was, he, and he was such a, you know, he was a teacher that all the girls just adored, you know? Um, and then he went on to be, he's actually was a head of school here in Florida and then I guess in Austin as well. So we have crossed paths a little bit. Um, I think, you know, I would go back and basically say, um, you're on, I mean, like you're on the right path. Like, that's the thing is I, I spent a lot of time wondering if I was doing the right thing. And I guess that's also very developmentally in your twenties. Like, what am I going to do next? And, and certainly, so my daughter is 26 and she's sort of in this, she's finished up her first job. She's going to go to grad school. She's sort of in this, what do I, what happens next? And I think, like many of us, I worried a lot about it. Like, you know, am I, you know, and and I think part of that worry is a motivational component. I do think that, like, it inspires you to think about, okay, what do I want? Where do I want to go? Um, but I wish I hadn't lost as much sleep about it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that, um, you know, I, 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 um, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have tried to control the future so much. Like, like, I think I, I mean, I'm a pretty goal directed sort of person. And sometimes you just have to sort of like, let things happen, right? Let it unfold. And I'm not great at that. Like, I'm not like, let's just see what happens. It's just, it's not in my nature. I'm a planner. I'm just a planner. Preach. And I wish I yeah, I wish I just sort of let it happen a little bit more. But, but you know, I mean, I think sometimes it's just how you're wired. You know what I mean? It's just how you're wired. Um, so I, I uh, you know, 
I, I think like the time I spent in New Mexico fundamentally changed me. And, and the thing about taking a risk, like, so my mom died when I was 24. And I think that was something that has always shaped how I've looked at the world. So like she was 56 and I thought, okay, let's work backwards. If I have till I'm 56, like, what am I going to do? And I think it also enabled me to be like, let's leave Washington. Let's go out West. If I hate it, I can go back home. But at the end of the day, like going to New Mexico fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life. And so I'm super glad I took that risk. Um, and that's something that I certainly tell my kids is like, try it. And if you don't like it, you can always come home. Like you could always come back. And I think mm-hmm. that they, they have taken that lesson to heart. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, they're doing some interesting things mm-hmm. too. So I know, I know Brad is secretly jealous of your, of your son. Yeah, not so secretly anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now it's out. <laughs> All right. Last question. What would be the title of your memoir? I would say um, worth it. Totally worth it. Like worth it. Yeah. You know, and that's, and you know, I, I, I think, I think this life of being in schools and developing relationships with so many kids, it's mm-hmm. so interesting. Like the thing about working in a school is like, they're always going to be 16 year olds who like have drama in their lives and like, it's different drama, but it's so, and it's new to them. And so it's just always interesting to watch kids grow up. Like, like it's, you know, I, I've often said I'd love to do the soap opera, like independent school. You know what I mean? You got drama, you got, you know, you got money, you got sex, you got achievement, you know, it would be a hilarious thing, but it's just like, it's just so interesting. People are so interesting yeah. and watching people learn and grow and um, come through challenges that we all come through. It's just, I think it's, you know, I, I, I think everyone should, should have that experience of working in schools. So, mm-hmm. but I'm biased. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you worked at our school. Oh, you too. You made a like big you. impact and well, I'm just, I was just so lucky. I think, like, I think the stars aligned and, and I also agree with a lot of what you've said is like, it was an easier time to be an adolescent. I do. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel it's so hard yeah. for, for kids today. Yeah. Um, and I also think, you know, at the end of the day, kids really just want to um, interact with each other and be together. Like that's one of the lessons of COVID mm-hmm. is that we have found that at the end of the day, no matter all the technology, all the devices, at the end of the day, they want to be together, sitting around a table and just sort of hanging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's also interesting to me, just with my own kids as well as kids that I've taught over the years, how I think kids feel like whatever they do by the time they either end high school or maybe end college, that's, that's it. That's where they've done all their learning and growing. <laughs> and I think that's just so funny. I remember feeling that way too. Look, if I hadn't done it by the time I went to high school, I was never going to do it. So like, don't do any sports after 18. I mean, what, it, there was a cutoff, a mark. No, once you've crossed that yeah. line, you're yeah. <laughs> it's over. And I think that is the biggest revelation for me is that that's like barely the beginning, yeah. right? There's so much more to learn and do and try and, um, really that was a great, those were great seeds to plant. And now it's really time to do the living. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And, and, and the thing is that like you, you just always want to make new mistakes, mm-hmm. like try, like once you learn and, and if you did something wrong, okay, you can do it differently. I do think that there's, that's sort of the whole idea about um, just being open to different opportunities. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I think, so like, I think this podcast is so great. Like I actually <laughs> thought about some of the stuff and using it with students here, you know, incorporating some of the stuff into my remarks to kids here, because um, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine. I mean, because again, developmentally, when you're a teenager, you don't think, what am I going to look back and think about this? Right. <laughs> so. Well, we'll have our legal team contact your legal team yeah. about the rights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're welcome no, to share it. I think about, <laughs> as a parent, I have found listening to these so helpful mm-hmm. and A lot of it, I think, is related to your point, Carla, that people change so much from when they're 18 to now. And it's so cool to see people develop or navigate something in a way that never would have occurred to me to do. Um, It's really, really been... um, I don't know. It's made me feel better as a parent when I see my kids struggling because I'm going, oh, it's fine. You know, you're, you're not even going to remember yeah, this when you're, right. like, you're not going to remember know. it or, 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 you know, it's just like you have so many more days ahead of you to make different choices and to figure things out. And just for today, just do what you can and enjoy the people around you and, cut yourself some slack. Um, there's, it's been really affirming of humans over the years. Yeah. Figuring it out. (laughs) Mostly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I hope you will consider coming to our 35th reunion. That sounds awesome. Next year. Yeah, I definitely will. We definitely get back there. We go back to Albuquerque with regularity. So Definitely. Yeah. I love when I'm there. I, you know, I, I have this, I've posted this probably a million times, but I go running around the external part of the cross country and I take this picture of the Sandias and I'm like, I always have the same caption, which is like, oh, Sandias make me feel young again. Like, I feel like I'm 25 again because they don't change. They don't change at all. It's the best. It's the best feeling to be like, okay, you know what? Huh? It's very grounded. Yeah, I always feel that way when I go home, but it didn't occur to me that it's about the permanence of the landscape. And I think that is actually a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, my parents don't even live in Albuquerque anymore, so I don't really have a home to go back to, so I usually crash at Jessica's. But the minute I walk walk into the airport in Albuquerque, I just feel like, oh, yeah, this is is where I grew up. This is my... Well, this has been awesome. I can't wait to hear thank it. Thank you so um, much for your time and reflections. And it was just wonderful. Thank you for letting me. Like, I mean, I do feel like I'm crashing the party a little bit. So I really no. do appreciate letting me letting me participate. I really do. I feel like this is no. like special event. Right. <laughs> special special event. Right, right. yeah. Well, good luck. Yes. Thank you guys so great much. to see you. Have a great yeah. rest of your day. Bye. Bye. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. 
Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.